Lieutenant, where did you see your assault Mr. Brummett? It was about dark two weeks ago. Day before reports were carried in the paper. I saw it in the front porch of the business for about five seconds. The front porch of the office was over. Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Sometimes history tells that people have experiences that challenge not simply their least important, passing convictions. These experiences, traumatic and transformative, shake their most basic beliefs about themselves and the world. In such cases, a person's web of beliefs is ripped open, or its moorings are cut loose. It is not so easy to just move on and go on with your life as usual. What, for instance, could you believe, if barely an adolescent, you went to high school one fine April day, a bright morning like numberless others, and playing cricket in the yard before morning recess, you suddenly became aware of what looked like a disc-shaped metallic object hovering above the oval. Then, before you had the chance to rub your eyes, the air around you filled with excited cries. Look, look, flying saucers! For the children of Westall High School in Victoria's Clayton South, there was no indication that the day of April the 6th, 1966, would be among the most remarkable of their lives. Around 11 a.m., a group of students was returning to class from a sports lesson at the school oval when a number of them spotted a large, gray, or silver, saucer-shaped object or objects floating through the sky. Children emerged from their classrooms, drawn out by excited proclamations about flying saucers, A number of them allegedly collapsed in fright, terrified of the sight before them. Now tonight I'm going to introduce most of you, for the very first time, to a UFO story that took place in the midst of the Cold War, half a world away from Europe and the U.S., a case so compelling that it's been called Oswell, and is without a doubt the most witnessed documented sighting in Australian history, at least since Europeans arrived. And yet to this very day, many people in the lucky land have never heard of astounding case of what has been come to be known as the Westall School Sighting. Well, good evening, everyone, wherever you are in the world. I hope things are going well for you. I hope for those of you who celebrate Easter and the Easter holidays that your preparations are going well and everything's on track. Down here, it's been still quite warm. We're having a bit of an Indian summer. We've had a lot of rain in the last few days, but we needed it, so no problem there. To my friends listening from Australia and specifically from Queensland, I hope that you're all all right over there in the lockdown. So for those of you who don't know, Queensland has gone into another three-day lockdown in Brisbane in the the large city there because of some community cases. So hopefully everything comes out of that well for all of you that are over there. Now, like I say, tonight's case is really probably the most seminal UFO event in Australian history as far as the most sensational, the most astounding claims, and the largest amount of people who have viewed it. But on the other hand, it's also little known in Australia, because at the time it was not well publicized, and there are a couple of explanations for that. The skeptical mind will say, well, there's not a lot to it, because the case was not extraordinary. However, to the people on the other side of the coin, and especially to the people who claim to have cited these things, They say that it's all been a cover-up, and that the government clamped down on people talking about it, and that's why, 55 years later, it's very little known. We are coming up on the 55th anniversary of this case, 
on the 6th of April. So it's a great time to cover this over. And realistically, folks, this is going to be a two-parter because I've got some amazing audio interviews of witnesses at the time that I want to make sure that I include in this case, but I also don't want to make this a three-hour episode. So we're going to split it in two. I'm not sure quite where we're going to stop tonight, but I'll get to a nice safe landing spot. And then next week, we'll cover over the rest of the case, and I'll make sure that you get to listen to those files. For those of you who have given me kind words about the episode with Nate, with Nate Odd from Instagram, the chapter president in Pennsylvania, thank you very much. We both enjoyed the conversation, and I'm glad so many of you have enjoyed that episode. Now, the good news is, in a few weeks, probably mid-April, we'll be having Nate back on to have a part two because there were several cases that we didn't cover over, and there's even some other stuff that I'm going to ask Nate off the very top about some of the more famous things in Pennsylvania that we haven't focused on in the episode, but I'd still like his feedback because he's gone to some of these places. Aside from that, I'm well, uh, staying out of trouble, been catching up on a few movies and that. Believe it or not, folks, this may astound a lot of you, but I had never seen The Truman Show, and I saw it come on a while back and I recorded it. I mean, I knew the premise of it, but I hadn't sat down and watched the movie. So I sat down and watched the movie, and I can see why it is such a explanation for a lot of people of the fact that we're living in a matrix, and some of the people who believe that the Earth is flat and that we're living under a dome, I can fully see why they use that as an example, because it is a perfect example. Now, whatever the reality is, I've got a feeling the only way I'm going to know is when it's time for me to pass on to whatever the next realm may hold. I think that's when most of us will find out most of life's mysteries. That doesn't mean we don't keep trying to find out what's going on. And it's just like tonight's Westall case. Over the years, things have come out. Updates have been given. And as you would expect, now we're getting to the point where many of the people have passed away that actually cited these cases. I mean, this happened 55 years ago. Most of the people were school children, so now they're getting into their 60s. So, yeah, it won't be long, unfortunately, and we'll have another major sighting with most of the witnesses who are now gone. So, yeah, I watched The Truman Show. I also watched another movie that was based on a Rudyard uh, Kipling uh, uh, novella, which was The Man Who Would Be King. Again, a subject, a type of movie that's very much in JT's interest, and I can't go past many of Sean Connery's movies that I haven't seen, and Michael Caine is also in that. So a very well done movie, I thought, uh, as often the book and the movie are two different beasts, but I thought it was fairly well done. And I've always had an interest in those ancient histories, lost history, so to speak, alternative history, the way that things may have happened that we're not told about. And that is very much at the nexus of this movie. Now, another thing that I just happened to see the other night on the National Geographic channel here was a show about a Templar fortress somewhere in the um, the Holy Land, for lack of a better term. I'm trying to think of the proper name. I guess the uh, the Levant area, so somewhere on the Mediterranean coast of current-day Israel or Syria, somewhere in that area. And it was basically them reconstructing with an app uh, how this fortress looked. And it was quite interesting because, again, the Templars are at the crux of so many ancient mysteries and so many of the where did they go, where did their treasure go, and everything else. 
So I found that quite interesting, getting to see how this, how they believe anyway, that this fortress actually looked when it existed. Now, interestingly enough, folks, I will give you a little bit of a teaser. That interview that I did with someone who I told you that is a definitely had a major influence on my interest in all of the things that I cover, and someone who is a bit of a, someone I definitely look up to in the field, I told you that I had a bit of an issue with the audio. Now, my friend Scott from the Old 77 podcast has been so generous with his time. He went through a few months ago and he stripped out all of the audio. So now I'm going through and writing down what I said so I can basically re-record that and paste that in. So hopefully, I'll have that episode out in the not-too-distant future. And again, it's an excellent episode because it's basically a fanboy moment for me where I got to interview someone who I've always really admired. And there are a couple other people also in the archive files that are backed up where I've got a couple more interviews with other people who I've genuinely admired. I've loved their work, and I will get those to you when I can. So basically with this, we're looking at two episodes for Westall, and then we'll probably be going back to Pennsylvania for an episode or two. Now, folks, we're also not too far off of the official 50th episode of The Paranormal Sun. Now, when you take in all of the bonus episodes and everything else, we're actually around 70 episodes, believe it or not. So that just goes to show all of the additional material that I do try to put out there. But um, it's also one of the things where, yeah, it's just one of those things where I've got to have time to go through and think up something for that very special 50th episode. So it'll be episode 10 of this season because we did 20 a season for season one and two. So obviously number 10 is going to be that 50th episode. Now in and around that 50th episode somewhere, I'm probably going to have a dark week, i.e. a week off. Uh, I've, I need to go and have a sanity week for myself. And specifically, I want to go and see a friend of mine that's over uh, not too far away, a couple hours drive. And I want to go and do it before the weather gets too much worse as we're heading into winter. So in and around that 50th episode somewhere, I'll be having a bit of a break. But I'll make sure that I communicate that in advance to you. And who knows, I might even do a bit of a bonus episode to keep you interested that week. Maybe we'll do another CIA file or another extra big news of the damned episode. Now, the reason why those are fairly easy to churn out is because it's a matter of me going and finding articles and then reading you those articles versus actually creating content. Like I say, a lot of these episodes that you'll hear, the normal standard episodes, you're talking about anywhere from 15 to 30 pages of dialogue that I've, you know, that I do research on, and then I use that as the basis for the episode. So yeah, folks, exciting times. Like I say, so we're coming up on that 50th episode of The Paranormal Sun and still going strong. The plan is to do this for as long as I can, as I say. Now on that note, to the friends of mine uh, and the loyal listeners, who have already donated to the cause of the Paranormal Sun. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I am starting to create some bonus content. I created a very special second episode of The Celtic Sun, which I've released to those people who have uh, sent donations into me. Now, I will get, again, it's just something. It's one of those things where I've got to balance everything because I'm a one-man band. And if I'm busy screwing around with the website and Patreon and that, I'm not creating content. So first and foremost, I try and get content created, and then after that, I try to worry about doing things like revamping Patreon and everything else. But 
in the very near future, I want to have that Patreon page up and going. So you can go and find bonus content there, bonus episodes. I've got a good idea of what I want to do and how I want to revamp the tiers. So more and more, you'll start hearing me talk about Patreon-only content. And again, it's not in any way to punish the loyal listeners who don't donate. It's just an additional content provided for those who do and help me keep the lights on around Tower Studios. Without you, uh, like I say, I'd really struggle to make ends meet around here. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, if you want to help the program and you can't do it financially, look, I fully understand. The best way to support the program is to tell someone who likes this kind of subjects, these kind of topics, the things that you like, tell them about the show. And again, I'm always open to thoughts and feedback. If there's something about the show you really like or something you think maybe I could do a little better, let me know. Send me an email. You can find all of the links to the show's social media and the email address and the physical address via going onto the Instagram page and looking at the link in the bio. Or alternatively, go and look in the show notes of any of these episodes that you're listening to. And there's a link at the very beginning of the show notes that says you can follow and support the show here. Click there and it'll take you to a link page, a landing page. And through there, you can go through and follow and support however you would like. So with all of that having been said, folks, it's been an exciting week news-wise, so I've got quite a few articles here we're going to get through. And I probably could have done one episode of this fascinating case if I cut out the news of the dam, but I already cut it out the last one with Nate, and a lot's happened, so I want to make sure that I cover it over for you. So for those of you who may be new to the program, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s in the U.S. named Charles Fort. Now, Charles Fort was one of the first people who started gathering information and news articles and magazine articles and other various accounts of strange phenomena along the lines of lights in the sky or what we now call UFOs, ghost ships, cryptids, all sorts of these things, hauntings, and he gathered them into note cards over many years. And then eventually he wrote several books and released these cases for you and I and everyone else who is interested in these topics to be able to sit there and go through and read about them and especially see them in a structured manner rather than just seeing one article in a newspaper one off and then kind of wondering, well, what else is out there in this field? Well, this gentleman is named Charles Fort, and this is where we get the terms Fortian or Fortiana, and he's also loaned several other words that he invented to the English language. Well, anyway, Charles Fort referred to anything that was ignored or excluded by science, and we all know that oftentimes when science doesn't want to talk about something, they just ignore it. Well, anyway, Charles Fort referred to this data, anything that science ignored, as damned data. Therefore, this segment is always called The News of the Damned as an homage to Charles Fort. So, my friends, the very first article we've got here, and we've got quite a few to get through tonight, is from the Daily Mail, which is uh, msn.com. And, sorry, so it's from msn.com, but it's from the Daily Mail in the UK. Now, I heard about this case, well, this article, a couple weeks ago, but very close friend of the show and chapter president in Illinois, 
Chris and Max sent me an article and asked me what my thoughts were about it. So this one is titled, U.S. has evidence of UFOs breaking sound barrier without a sonic boom. And this is from Harriet Alexander, and again for the Daily Mail, and this was on the 22nd of March. So it says, The U.S. has evidence of UFOs breaking the sound barrier without a sonic boom and making maneuvers impossible with known technology, the former director of national intelligence has revealed. Now, I found this article very, when I saw the first one, because of the fact that this is the guy in charge of national intelligence, okay? And I passed it on to a few other like-minded people and just said, if this is true, it's either, one, a misdirection because he was being so transparent with the things going on, or two, look, maybe disclosure isn't that far away. So anyway, back to the article. It says, the revelations increased excitement about a forthcoming report detailing what the U.S. government has observed. John Ratcliffe, who served as Donald Trump's director of national intelligence, said that many of the incidents still have no easy explanation. There are a lot more sightings than have been made public, Ratcliffe, Ratcliffe told Fox News. Some of those have been declassified. And when we talk about sightings, we are talking about objects that have been seen by Navy or Air Force pilots, or have been picked up by satellite imagery that frankly engage in actions that are difficult to explain. Movements that are hard to replicate that we don't have the technology for, or traveling at speeds that exceed the sound barrier without a sonic boom. Ratcliffe told host Maria Bartiromo that the sightings of unidentified aerial phenomena had been observed all around the world. 100% true. When we talk about sightings, the other thing I will tell you is, it's not just a pilot or just a satellite, or some intelligence collection, Ratcliffe said. Usually we have multiple sensors that are picking up these things, and some of these are unexplained phenomena, and there is actually quite a few more than have been made public. That's, again, 1,000% true. The government was, in December, given a 180-day deadline to disclose what it knew, meaning that the report should be out before June 1st. And again, folks, I've given you my thoughts on that. I really think that we're going to get to June 1st, and either we're not going to get a lot, or they're going to say, oh, well, we haven't had time to prepare it. Ratcliffe said he had hoped to publish their findings before he left office on January 20th. We weren't able to get it down into an unclassified format quickly enough, he said. The report was part of a $2.3 trillion COVID relief bill, which Trump signed into law in December. The bill contained the Senate Intelligence Committee's Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021 that had in it a committee comment section that addressed unidentified aerial phenomena. The report produced by the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies must identify, among other things, any threats posed by unidentified aerial phenomena and whether they may be attributed to foreign adversaries. Weather can cause disturbances, visual disturbances, Ratcliffe said. Sometimes we wonder whether or not our adversaries have technologies that are a little bit further down the road than we thought or than we realized. But there are instances where we don't have good explanations for some of the things that we have seen. Avril Haines is now the Director of National Intelligence in the Biden administration. The Defense Department announced in September the creation of an Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force on August 4th. Videos from the Navy were released last year through the Freedom of Information Act that showed UFOs moving at incredible speeds and performing seemingly impossible aerial maneuvers. One of the videos was shot in November of 2004. The other two were shot in January 2015. 
The three videos were codenamed FLIR1, Gimbal, and Go Fast. In the 2015 videos, Navy pilots can be heard expressing disbelief. All three UFO videos were captured by Navy FA-18 Super Hornets. The videos were made public and published because of efforts by the New York Times, as well as through efforts by To The Stars Academy, which was founded by Tom DeLonge, the founder and lead vocalist for the bands Blink-182 and Angels and Airwaves. Ratcliffe said it would be healthy for as much of this information as possible to be made public. Well, folks, there's a lot to unpack here. And anytime a very high-ranking person in any of these intelligence agencies comes out and says something like this, I'm very, let's say, tentative. Uh, skeptical wouldn't be the right term. It's more along the lines of what's going on here and why are they talking about this all of a sudden. Yeah, it's not something that we normally get. So when they start chatting about this on the quote-unquote outside in the public world and start telling us about some of these things, I do raise an eyebrow and wonder why are they telling us about this? Because generally it's all about secrecy and keeping things quiet. Now, if you look at this just 100% genuinely, you would say, oh, well, he's out of office now. That's why he's talking about it. But that's generally not the way this works, okay? We all know about security disclosure forms that they sign, that they have to keep these things, NDA, non-disclosure agreements. They have to keep these things quiet. It's very interesting that he's out there making the rounds. Now, if I was going to play what's at the bottom of this, this could be something where the government, now whether that's the obvious government that you think of, i.e. the president and Congress and all of them, either them or maybe the black government, the government that's underneath. Now, maybe it's one of them wanting to slowly leak some of this information. And because he has left office, they've given him permission to talk about certain things to see how the public reacts. But I'm sure there will be more on this. And again, with the things going on with COVID, with the things going on with the, the COVID relief package and the trial in Minnesota and on and on and on, this is very much slipped past most people in the mainstream, i.e. people who walk, you know go to work 9 to 5, watch their news. This would have gotten past 95% of those people. So I find this quite fascinating, and it definitely bears watching. So I'll be making sure to cover any updates on this as we go forward. And again, there's always a link to these articles in the show notes if you want to go and check it out yourself. And also... If there's an article that you see, something like this, send it to me. Email it to me. Send it to me on Instagram or Facebook. Just flick it on through, and I'll make sure that I read it on air for you. So that's the first one, and now we're going to move on to the second article. Now, long-term listeners to the program will know that I get a lot of my topics from Coast to Coast AM, and Coast to Coast AM is the grandfather of most people's experience with a lot of these subjects, because this is the overnight radio show from the U.S. that Art Bell founded in the early 90s, and they're still an excellent clearinghouse to this day of having a lot of articles on the unexplained, the unknown, and all the things we love to cover. So I do have quite a few articles that I get off of Coast to Coast. Now this one is titled, Cluster of Lanterns Over Mississippi, Mistaken for Fleet of UFOs. 
Now, folks, I just want to point something out. I've said it over and over and over on this program that there's plenty of room on the show for anyone who is a skeptic. What I don't have time for are debunkers. Now, I've had a few people say to me in not very polite terms on social media, oh, well, you always just leave these cases open-ended and, and you never show the ones that are proven to be hoaxes. Well, first off, yes, I have in the past. Secondly, I cover them fastidiously in the news of the damned. So maybe these people are just taking pot shots, and I'm sure they don't listen to the show. So here's another one, folks. And here is another case that ended up being nothing more than some lanterns. So this is from Tim Banal. And again, for those of you who don't know a lot about Coast to Coast, Tim Banal is always the byline author of a lot of these things. And they do what I do. They basically gather news stories from around the web, and then they have them on their website. So this one says a UFO mystery in Mississippi turned out to be rather short-lived as a curious set of lights suspected of being alien in nature was ultimately revealed to be merely a cluster of lanterns. The case of misidentification reportedly occurred on Sunday evening, and this was from the 25th of March, so whatever the Sunday was before that. When David Howell ventured out to his driveway in the community of South Haven and was astounded to see several glowing orbs in the night sky. Alongside his equally mystified father, Howell observed ten of the odd objects which seemed seemingly defied explanation. One of them was a lot bigger than the other nine, he said. They were going north-northwest and they could and they would change positions. Since the Howells managed to capture video of the sighting, their sighting wound up garnering the attention of a local news station, which reported on the puzzling UFO event and raised the question of what exactly the father and son had seen over South Haven on Sunday night. More often than not, this would be the end of the story, with believers arguing that the duo spotted some kind of ET craft and skeptics arguing that the objects were probably something prosaic, such as lanterns or drones, with the ultimate answer being up for debate. However, this case represents something of a rarity as the publicity surrounding the sighting actually led to someone stepping forward and taking claim for the UFOs. On Tuesday, South Haven resident Wanda Bell reached out to the TV station to inform them that the potential alien ships seen by the Howells were, in fact, sky lanterns that she and her family had released at a gathering on Sunday night to honor departed loved ones. The amused woman noted that during the get-together, her daughter actually suggested that someone would mistake the lights for UFOs, which is exactly what happened. Conceding that she does not believe in UFOs, Bell understood why the Howells might have thought the lanterns were something out of this world, as we were in awe because of the way they just lined up, and they just floated, and they went higher than we thought. For David Howell, the resolution to the mystery of something of a was something of a dispiriting end to a rather wild journey, as after his initial sightings, the witness indicated that his experience convinced him that the Earth is being visited, musing, I find it hard to believe we are alone. Alas, upon learning that the UFOs were merely lanterns, he had a very different perspective on the question, which has fascinated so many people for so long. It's okay. That's good, he said with what one imagines was a tinge of disappointment. Maybe we are alone. Well, folks, um, on this program, I leave the decision-making up to you. However, I personally am convinced that there must be some other life out there in the universe, in the multiverse, whatever you want to say. I'm sorry, it's just to me, I see it as an impossibility that we could be completely alone in the universe. Now, whether that is bacteria, 
whether that is intelligent beings that come here from Zeta Reticuli, whether it's beings that come to us from other dimensions, who knows? I definitely don't have the answers, but I just personally, I find it uh, implausible that there are no, there's no other life in the universe. That is like 1910 thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's not what we should be thinking. That's my opinion anyway. So yeah, folks, um, very interesting one. And it just goes to show, like I say, so many of these cases end up being explained. I, I've said it over and over on the show. I think that somewhere between three to 5% of UFO sightings are something that aren't explained. And even those three to five, I'm not saying every one of them is a spaceship from another galaxy or another dimension. I'm just saying that I think if you take 100 cases, you might have three to five that are actually really compelling. And out of those three to five, if you spend enough time, yeah, maybe you'd explain them. Maybe you wouldn't. But yeah, I definitely personally have no reservations in saying there must be something else in this universe. It's an awful it's an awful bit of hubris to me of mankind's arrogance to think we're the only thing in the universe. Um yeah, sorry, it's to me it's just impossible. Okay, so uh on to the next article here and this is a very interesting one. And this one has got to do with UFOs as well. And this one is, interestingly enough, from one of those countries we seem to get a lot of articles out of, which is Zimbabwe. So you've already know that I've covered over the purported mermaid or goblin cases in Zimbabwe. There's been some other things that I've covered out of there. And this is another one from coast to coast out of Zimbabwe. And this one says, UFO sighting sends man to the hospital. A man in Zimbabwe wound up needing medical attention following a UFO sighting which was so unsettling that he actually fall, fell off his motorcycle in fright. The weird incident reportedly occurred last Friday evening in the town of Chipenji, as Richmond Mumbayo was en route to his home at around 9 o'clock in the evening. The journey took a strange turn when he noticed an inexplicable object in the sky that he likened to a rocket with fire on its back. Despite doing his best to ignore the oddity and simply focus on getting home safely, the UFO suddenly emitted a deafening sound that shook Mbayo to such a degree that he was sent careening off of his motorcycle to the ground in a panic and, in the process, badly injured his leg. Looking back on the encounter, the man indicated in the moment he was certain that he was about to die. Of course, Mbayo survived the strange sighting and is currently recovering from the fall in the hospital. While his account may sound like the kind of fantastic story one might tell in order to save face after an embarrassing accident, it would appear that Mbayo was not the only witness to the UFO that evening. In fact, multiple residents of Chimpenge reported seeing something strange in the sky which behaved in the manner described by the injured man. One observer marveled that the object resembled a star headed eastwards and that it unleashed a frightening explosion-like sound akin to thunder. Amazingly, another witness revealed that he saw the object swiftly descending from the sky and seemingly explode upon hitting the ground with a huge thud. Although meteorologists in Zimbabwe have confirmed that multiple people reported seeing something unusual in the sky that night, they have thus far failed to provide an explanation for the odd event. While some might speculate that perhaps the event was some kind of UFO crash, a more plausible explanation may be that the witness saw an incoming meteor burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. As of now, however, the case remains a mystery. 
And yes, folks, oftentimes meteors, if they're of the right constitution of matter, when they hit the atmosphere, once they've gone through the pressure and the heat of the atmosphere and they heat up, they will explode. So look, that is a very fair comment. And I guess we will see. We'll find out more, probably. Hopefully they'll track down whatever it was. Now, this next one is very interesting, folks. And again, this one is one of those wow type things, you know, type articles. And this one, I there's a photo and I'm looking at it right now and it's pretty freaky. Deer with hairy eyes found in Tennessee. So John from Boom My Dad says, um, yeah, this is straight out of Tennessee, my friend. And a very interesting case. In a bizarre animal case out of Tennessee, wildlife officials recovered the remains of a deer that was stricken with a rare condition that caused its eyeballs to be hairy. The unfortunate creature was reportedly spotted last August in the community of Farragut, which is where it caught the attention of concerned residents because it was seen wandering around the streets seemingly in a daze. Authorities responded to the report promptly euthanizing the animal and, bewildered by its weird eyes, sent the deer to the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency for examination. The carcass of the creature was subsequently examined by specialists at the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study Program at the University of Georgia. Experts there determined that the deer had a condition known as corneal dermoids, dermoids which occurs when a skin-like tissue grows over the eyes, and in some instances, such as this particular case, the filmy substance can sprout hair. Upon removing the furry disc, the scientists found that the animal, which was approximately one and a half years old, had a perfectly normal eyeball beneath it. Dr. Nicole Namath, who spearheaded the study of the animal, theorized that it was likely born with the condition and that the hairy issue gradually grew over its eyes as it got older. Hairy tissue, sorry. The deer was able to adapt to its decreasing field of vision over time, she said, postulating that by the time it met its demise, the animal maybe could tell day from dark, but I wouldn't think it would be able to see where it was going. How the deer managed to survive so long with this condition is something of a mystery, though it is suspected that its mother likely protected it throughout its youth. Wow, folks, that is pretty freaky. And again, it just shows that there are conditions in nature that many of us don't even know about. We just find out about it when we come across an article like this. It's pretty freaky, though, because it's just grown over the cornea, this hair. It's You look at it, and it's just like, wow, I've never seen anything like that. So very interesting, and that's worth checking out just to see the photo, my friends. So we've got a few more here, and the reason why I haven't named another website is these are all coming from Coast to Coast AM. Now, we've got a cryptid one here for you, so like I say, this is a really good episode of News of the Dam. we got a little bit of everything. And this one is titled, Video Webcam Watcher Spots Nessie? Question mark. And this just came out on the 29th. And it says, an American Loch Ness webcam viewer has been credited with recording the fifth potential monster sighting of 2021 after she caught sight of a strange shape emerging from the waters of the legendary location. Kaylin Wangle spotted the oddity back on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, as she was watching the popular live stream that broadcasts from the famed Scottish site. Submitting her report to the official Loch Ness Monster Sightings Register, she wrote, A very large dark shape appears to be swimming from left to right at the very front of the shore. It seems to be making a wave for a bit and either surfaces for a second or is just under the surface. Wangle goes on to write that, after two seconds, 
it goes beneath the tree on the, on the right and doesn't pop back up. In addition to her own observation, the remote witness was able to capture the moment, which can be seen above, so there's a video in this link, as confirmation of the incident and subsequently posted it to her YouTube channel. Her account and the accompanying video were solid enough that Gary Campbell, who runs the Nessie Registry, deemed it the fifth official sighting of the year. Much like her webcam-sharing counterpart in Ireland, Ian O. Fagdegain, um, yeah, sorry if I butchered that, is not Wangle's first successive glimpse of something strange at Loch Ness, as she had two reports accepted last year and is actually credited with the first sighting of 2021 as well. So, look, maybe I'll go and check that out at some point. Apparently, you can just go and watch this webcam and hang out and wait for Nessie to turn up, folks. A very interesting one, nonetheless. And I watched a little bit of this video. It's over five minutes, so I don't want to sit here and watch the whole thing. But, yeah, it's definitely something in the water. Uh, could it be a log? Uh, it doesn't look the right shape for a log to me, personally. It's definitely something under the water, and there's two instances of it two different times in the video it shows up in two different spots so yeah all i'm saying is this is a very interesting one you might want to go over and check that out and again link in the show notes so the next one here is for unfortunately it's a bit of a tragic tale but this is from india and i've got a lot of listeners in india and thank you for all your support and when i saw this one i had to make sure i cover this plus it's definitely in the realm of something that jt loves to cover so this one says, Treasure Hunt Turns Tragic in India. In an unfortunate story out of India, a pair of men who had been led to believe that there was a treasure hidden in their backyard perished by way of an accident that occurred during the dig. According to a local media report, the tragic tale actually began last October when a purported sorcerer told a family in the community of Chennai, and I've definitely got listeners in Chennai, that untold riches had been buried on their property, taking the magical man at his word, they subsequently spent a staggering six months digging a massive 50-foot-deep pit in their yard until this last Sunday when disaster struck. Following what one assumes was a fairly sizable storm, the chasm that the family had created became flooded, and in turn, they lowered a motorized pump into the pit to drain it. Once the problem appeared to be solved, two of the treasure hunters descended down into the hole to continue the dig but they were quickly overcome by noxious gas, presumably left behind by the machine. Other members of the family eventually suspected something was amiss, and upon checking on the men, discovered their unconscious bodies at the bottom of the shaft. Although they were able to retrieve the treasure hunters and transport them to hospital, it was all for naught as they passed away shortly thereafter due to what doctors say was exposure to poisonous gas. Chillingly, authorities investigating the claim discovered a skull as well as materials used for black magic at the site and suspect that some kind of human sacrifice may have taken place at that location. And as often the case with stories of this nature, the sorcerer who started it all is nowhere to be found, having fled the area once things had gone terribly wrong. Wow, that's, um, that is really a tragedy. Um, and for those of you who follow or know of the story of Oak Island, there was a case of this happening on Oak Island in the 60s where they were working down in a pit and they were running a pump and the pump ended up gassing one of the people, the father, and then the son went and followed him in to try and drag him out and he passed out. Then a third person went to try and save him and he passed out and they all died. So this is no laughing matter. It's no joke. And yeah, if this photo is of the hole, and I don't think it is, 
because it's from Getty Images. I was going to say the hole isn't reinforced either with timber or anything. I thought it was going to be a collapse pit, not a um, carbon monoxide poisoning. But yeah, folks, if you ever get into an instance like this, tread carefully because you can't see it, you can't smell it, and it will kill you within minutes. I mean, carbon monoxide is definitely something that you're not going to outrun. So we've got one more here, folks, and this one is a ghost story. So we got a little bit of everything, like I say. And this is also from Coast to Coast, and this one is titled, Ohio Cop Encounters Ghost Girl? With a question mark. In an odd story out of Ohio, a police officer may have encountered a ghost as he was responding to a report of a seemingly out-of-place little girl wandering around late in the evening. According to a local media report, people living in the city of Mentor have been captivated on social media over the last few weeks as multiple residents have shared home security camera footage of an anomalous white form that could be seen quickly traveling along a sidewalk. As one might imagine, speculation in the community has centered around whether or not it was an apparition and, it would seem, an appearance by the curious figure ultimately wound up prompting a call to the police, but their investigation only made matters all the more mysterious. A concerned resident phoned the Mentor Police Department back on March the 10th at around 11.40 p.m. with a rather weird report. I was surprised by what I saw, they said, explaining that they noticed a person near an area elementary school who resembled a small girl, but was running rather erect and too quickly for a child. Eerily, when cops arrived on the scene to investigate, one officer actually saw a youngster matching the description provided by the puzzled caller. However, when he exited his patrol car to tend to the tot, the child was gone. Certain of what he had seen, the cop continued looking for the little girl, but she was nowhere to be found. To their credit, the Mentor Police Department took the matter very seriously and enlisted the help of several other officers, as well as a canine unit and even a drone to search the area looking for the child. But the exhaustive effort proved futile. Chillingly, when the cop who had originally seen the little girl went back and checked his dashcam video from the encounter, the youngster did not appear on the footage. The perplexing incident would appear to bolster the, brief, the belief of some residents that there is a ghost child roaming the streets of the city. However, other people in Mentor are not as convinced, insisting that the apparition is merely the case of mistaken identity or perhaps the work of a prankster. Well, folks, um, yeah, something very interesting again. And I've heard stories of this in the past where people start seeing an entity, a, a spirit, let's say, a ghost, and many other people start seeing it as well. So it is interesting, folks, and we shall stand by and see if any good photos or video comes out of it. Now, with all that out of the way, folks, I hope that you enjoyed the news of the dam for this episode. And now we're going to get into the case dubbed Oswell, one of the most fascinating cases out of Australia of a UFO sighting way back in 1966. We're just now coming up on the 55th anniversary. It was a warm autumn week in April of 1966 in the state of Victoria in Australia. These boots are made for walking was all over the radio and the first Australian draftees had just left to fight in Vietnam. The Mavis Bramston Show was the hit TV program. Life was not easy, but it was stable. Then for one suburb, things changed, and they changed forever. 
1966, a strange UFO encounter was witnessed by hundreds of people near Melbourne, Australia. What did they see, and why were they forced to keep quiet about it? Tonight on The Paranormal Sun, you're going to learn about this startling event, the most famed UFO sighting in modern Australian history. Westall is the unofficial nickname of Clayton South, a little suburb about 13 miles outside of Melbourne's CBD, or city centre. Inhabited by European settlers since the mid-1800s, the area was largely used for farming and market gardening. But by the 1950s, it was undergoing a prosperous period of expansion. Industrial ventures, including a Volkswagen assembly plant, attracted greater residential settlement. However, it never industrialized to the extent of some of the other areas. Even today, Clayton South remains a relatively small suburb, with less than 15,000 people living in the area. Melbourne itself was also flourishing. Migrants were arriving from all around the world, looking to make a home there, attracted by the greater stability and potential for growth that the city offered. But there was a dark undercurrent to this happier exterior. Like much of the rest of the world, the twin specters of communism and nuclear war loomed large in the public consciousness. People were afraid, and not without reason. The terrible devastation caused by World War II was well within living memory at the time. Then as now, there was no guarantee that far worse would not take place in the future. So it was against this prosperous yet paranoid backdrop that the Westall sightings took place. UFOs have a storied history in Australia, with written records arguably stretching back as far as the late 18th century. As might be expected, ancient astronaut enthusiasts have controversially pointed back much further to the agenda of Aboriginal mythology. In more recent times, the continent has been home to high-profile UFO cases, such as the disappearance of Frederick Valantich, the Nullarbor Plain UFO, and the alleged abduction of Kelly Cahill. Yet the Westall UFO still stands high above them all in local lore. UFOs captured the Australian imagination to a considerable degree, particularly after the famous Kenneth Arnold sighting in Washington State of the U.S. in 1947. Investigative groups like Offoran, the Australian UFO Research Network, have scoured newspapers from the era to come up with plenty of sightings, which might otherwise have been lost to history. Flicking through these reports, Melbourne does not seem to have been specifically singled out as a UFO hotspot, though it definitely had its share of sightings, just as you might expect from a major urban centre. April 6, 1966 marks a remarkable day in the history of Westall High School. That day, a class was running laps around the school's field, when something unbelievable happened. A saucer-like machine flew over the southwest wing of the main building before disappearing behind a line of trees. Not much was needed to get articles about UFOs to appear in Australian newspapers, which collected close to 200 witness accounts, without uncovering the answer to this mystery. Yet this interest does not seem to have fostered some of the more unusual and extreme elements that accompanied the rise of the UFO phenomena in the U.S., Australians love many things about American pop culture, but there is frequently a more cynical attitude towards its many excesses. Though Australians may have been entranced by the prospect of UFOs, and in turn extraterrestrial life, there is no Antipodian equivalent of, say, George Adamski. Contactee cults and their ilk are more likely to attract overt mockery than committed followings down under. Yet while the Westall UFO sightings did not occur in a vacuum, it was certainly an anomaly, even at the time. The archetypical UFO experience of a mysterious light in the night sky, spotted by a solitary witness or handful of companions, simply did not apply. 
It's an atypical case, says journalist Cameron Lucadow Wells, who has been reporting on the Westall UFO since 2006. It occurred during broad daylight, featured hundreds of witnesses, and also attracted attention from the police and the RAAF. That's the Royal Australian Air Force, folks. On the morning of April the 6th, 1966, at approximately 11 a.m., school children and teachers at the Westall High School in Melbourne witnessed what many believed to be a UFO encounter. However, the incident was not widely reported beyond local newspapers. In fact, a couple of the local papers ran cartoons making fun of the reported sighting. The Australian government refused to comment on the case. Witnesses claimed to have seen a silvery, purple-hued saucer around the size of two or three cars float overhead and land in a nearby paddock. According to those witnesses, it stayed there for roughly 20 minutes before it took off at speed, with accounts describing it being pursued by a number of light aircraft. Consultation of flight records reportedly showed that no commercial, private, or military aircraft had been registered in the area at the time. For a time, students milled around, hoping that it might return. It did not, however, but its departure was accompanied by the arrival of military and police personnel, who tried to contain the incident as best they could. Students were forbidden to speak to the press, and the school principal issued a statement attributing the whole thing to mass hysteria. Witnesses were left with questions, but no answers, or means of coping with what they had just experienced. Fifty-five years later, many of them are still looking. A small story run in The Age, so that's one of the local papers, the following day, suggesting that the saucer could have been a Bureau of Meteorology weather balloon that was tracked into the area by the wind. Although this has never struck as the definitive answer. And again, folks, weather balloons, yep, must be a weather balloon. It's always one of the top answers. More on that later. An article published just over a week later in the Dananong Journal claimed that the investigation was being hampered by the reluctance of witnesses to talk. After more than a week of investigation, mystery still surrounds the reported sighting last Wednesday of a flying saucer near the Westall High School in Clayton. Investigations of the report have been hampered by the reluctance of school authorities to permit interviews with eyewitness students and staff members. Several children attending the school, and at least one staff member, are reported to have seen the unidentified flying object. They are believed to have given corroborating descriptions of the object as a round, humped object with a flat base being circled by what appeared to be light aircraft. In a later article, the Danny Nong Journal said that the students and staff had been instructed to talk to no one about the incident. After the UFO left, students were brought inside. The headmaster at the school held an assembly. The students claimed that they were told the following. He gave the school a lecture and told the children they would be severely punished if they talked about this matter and told the staff they could lose their jobs if they mentioned it at all. Some students did come forward and give interviews. However, with the weeks that followed, the school asked that the students not give interviews and concentrate on their studies instead. Now that's the case in a nutshell, folks, and now we're going to move on to a bit of the aftermath. The Nanninong Journal ran with coverage of the incident on its front page for two consecutive issues, and Nine News also reported the story on its 6 o'clock bulletin, so that's the nightly news. The film canister, however, containing the Channel 9 footage from the incident, has since been found empty in the station's archives. Witnesses believe that there's a cover-up involved. The McDonald Visit on June 24, 1967, a true heavyweight in the UFO field touched down in the Lucky Land, and he was interested in learning all he could 
about the UFO phenomenon in both Australia and here across the ditch in New Zealand. While on this trip, he would become deeply interested in several cases of note. Remember Father Gill and Boy and I? Yes, MacDonald spoke with him. Of more impact to this episode, however, he also interviewed the principal known adult witness at the time of the Westall sighting. The American physicist Dr. James E. MacDonald is best known for his research regarding UFOs. MacDonald was a senior physicist at the Institute for Atmospheric Physics and a professor of meteorology at the University of Arizona in Tucson. MacDonald campaigned in support of expanding UFO studies during the mid and late 1960s, arguing that UFOs represented an important unsolved mystery which had not been adequately studied by science. He was also one of the more prominent figures of his time, who argued in favor of the extraterrestrial hypothesis as a plausible, but not completely proved, model of UFO phenomena. MacDonald interviewed over 500 UFO witnesses, uncovering many important government UFO documents, and gave presentations of UFO evidence. He testified before Congress, that's the U.S. Congress, during the UFO hearings of 1968. MacDonald also gave a famous talk called Science in Default to the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS. It was a summary of the current UFO evidence and critique of the 1969 infamous Condon Report UFO study. On June 28, 1967, Westall High School science teacher Andrew Greenwood was interviewed by MacDonald. He interviewed a science teacher from the Westall School. He was the only faculty member willing to report what became known as the Westall UFO encounter at that time, because there have been other faculty members who have come out later on. Andrew Greenwood was a science teacher at Westall High School and is the only staff member known to have reported seeing the object at the time. He gave a detailed account of what he saw to the newspapers soon after the event. McDonald then recorded himself describing their meeting and the creepy details Greenwood gave about his experience. Greenwood told me the UFO was first brought to his attention by a historical child who ran into his classroom and told him, there's a flying saucer outside, McDonald says on the recording. He thought this child had become deranged or something, so he didn't take any notice. But when the child insisted that this object was in the sky, he decided to go out and have a look for himself. When Greenwood went outside, he noticed a group of children looking towards the northeast area of the school grounds, and as he approached them, he claims he saw a UFO hovering close to the power lines. The following is what Mr. Greenwood reported. Mr. Greenwood first saw the object when it rose into view from beyond the pine trees at an area known as the Grange. Furthermore, he described it as a silvery streak, like a thin beam of light about half the length of a light aircraft. At first it appeared with only a single aircraft, but was eventually joined by five. He described a cat-and-mouse game that the aircraft played with the object, a game which lasted a full 20 minutes. Every time they got too close to the object, it would slowly accelerate, then rapidly accelerate, and then move away from them and stop. Then they would take off after it again, and the same thing would happen. The object moved side to side, and its size appeared to fluctuate slightly. By the end of the morning recess, Greenwood said it turned away, and when he looked again, the object and the five airplanes had gone. Greenwood described it as round, silver object about the size of a car with a metal rod sticking up in the air. According to MacDonald, Greenwood then told him that five planes came and surrounded the object as more people began gathering to watch the scene before them. He called it the most amazing flying he has ever seen in his life, MacDonald said. The planes were doing everything possible to approach the object, and he saw how they all avoided a collision he will never know. 
Every time they got too close to the object, it would slowly accelerate, then rapidly accelerate, and then move away from them and stop. Then they would take off again, after it, and the same thing would happen. This game of cat and mouse reportedly went on for about 20 minutes, and by this time Greenwood said 350 children and several staff were watching on. Suddenly the UFO shot away and vanished within seconds, and it was at this point that the headmaster came out and ordered everyone to go back to class. Over the years, there were reports that the government tried to cover up the incident and stop witnesses from talking, but Greenwood claimed it was the headmaster that first tried to squash the discussion of the incident. He gave the school a lecture and told the children they would be severely punished if they talked about the matter, and he also told the staff they could lose their jobs if they mentioned it at all, McDonald said. The teacher claimed the headmaster was so scared and disturbed by the incident that he refused to come outside until the object was gone. When the RAAF contacted the headmaster, he told them to go and jump in a lake, McDonald said. Now, folks, that would be interesting enough in and of itself, but it wouldn't be a great case. It wouldn't be ranked where it is all time if there wasn't more to it. So here we go. There have been claims from several witnesses that sharply dressed men in black suits visited them and warned them from speaking about the incident. This lines up with a few experiences Greenwood had when he tried to speak with other witnesses about what they saw. At the time of seeing the UFO, he was a complete skeptic himself. He has never even considered the possibility of their existence, McDonald said. Several witnesses report that the military who arrived to inspect and flatten the circles left by the craft included men in blue uniforms unlike any worn by the Australian Armed Forces of the day. Years later, Greenwood stated that two officers of the Australian government came to his home after he spoke with the newspapers. They threatened him under the Government Secrecy Act and told him he could not have seen a UFO because UFOs did not exist. They also threatened to tell people he was an alcoholic, although he was never a drinking man. When he asked the physical education teacher to describe what she had seen herself, so that he could compare it to his own observations, she just wouldn't say anything. Greenwood then reportedly spoke to one of the older students, who described the event in great detail, exactly as he had seen it. But when he spoke to her again half an hour later, she wouldn't say a word. Greenwood didn't think it had anything to do with the headmaster's threats, as no one usually took him very seriously, and he knew for a fact that the student he spoke with didn't attend the morning meeting where the threats were made anyway. Being a kid in 1960s Clayton, a suburb of Melbourne's outskirts, was to be a kid in a time and a place that was carefree and conventional. Backyard cricket, homemade lemonade, terry toweling everything. Dee Sadike was this child, Clayton bred and conventionally carefree. But Dee was also a kid burdened by a secret. Dee had seen a plane shaped like a coin, no tail, no noise, no pilot. On April 6, 1966, D was at Clayton South Primary School, two kilometers down the road from Westall Primary and Westall Secondary. It's about a mile and a half. It was recess when D spotted a disc in the sky moving east, slowly, horizontally. The disc tilted on an angle and disappeared. Another kid saw it too, but refused to talk about it, and neither did D. She was seven years old at the time. Forty years later, sitting in a doctor's waiting room, D flicked through the magazines. An article said, we've kept our UFO secret for 40 years. That secret was also D's secret. The magazine D held revealed the story of Sue Savage, how at 13, Sue, with more than 200 Westall primary and secondary students, witnessed three metallic discs descend, ascend, 
tilt on an angle, and then disappear. Now, folks, for those of you that aren't familiar with Australia and New Zealand schools, primary and secondary is like elementary school and high school. So what they're saying is that there were students of all ages that saw this. D says people are in denial, that people will believe what they want to believe. What D learned at seven was open-mindedness, to watch the skies. Tony Boast learned that too. Tony was a student at Westall Primary School. Tony, like D, was seven. He followed a throng of secondary students as they raced towards three silver-like saucers. Students clambered onto a buckling cyclone fence on the school's edge and watched as the objects dropped into the Grange Heathland, the six-hectare green belt south of the school grounds. Tony was ushered back to the classroom. The older kids disobeyed and leapfrogged the, the fence, running hell-bent for the Grange. Tony was told not to talk about it, but Tony told his mum. That Saturday, he took her to the Grange. An older girl, screaming and hysterical, was being dragged by her parents to where the discs had landed. She clutched the ground and snatched at plants. This memory, and that of the discs, are embedded in Tony's veins. Tony's mum, too, who told her friends. Tony says his mum did not believe that children should be seen and not heard. Tony is a salt-of-the-earth type. He was a motor mechanic, then a bus driver, and now a BHP employee. Tony says he is quiet about his close encounter of the first kind. Tony has tolerated 55 years of disbelief. So has Sue Savage. Sue is vehement that we are not the only ones, and we are not alone. Sue's dad once told her to shut up. She's been asked if she was on drugs when she saw it. Sue was in 8th grade science when a student barged in shrieking, Flying saucer! Flying saucer! The class bolted outside, Sue among them. The teacher, Mr. Greenwood, in hot pursuit. But Sue was a goody two-shoes and hung back when kids ventured beyond the cyclone fencing. Sue never spoke of what she saw. Sue, like Tony, was told not to talk about it. She told her parents and later her own children, but received skepticism from even them. Three discs were seen over Westall, tailed by light aircraft, on Wednesday, 6 April of 1966. Three discs descended into the Grange and landed. Then they rose, tilted on an angle, and reflected the sun. Children blinked, and the three discs were gone. Circular patterns flattened the grass in the Grange. Treetops were burned black. Authorities arrived, then the military, then U.S. personnel. A girl named Tanya, overwrought with delirium, was carted off in an ambulance. Friends dropped by Tanya's home that evening. A woman answered the door, told them Tanya and her family had never lived there, told them to leave, and never come back. Tanya and her family were never seen again. Men in uniform excavated the circular patterns, hauled the dirt onto the back of trucks, and were not seen again. Media outlets were gagged. In 2013, the city of Kingston erected a playground in the now-renowned Green Belt. The jungle gym is shaped like a flying saucer. Paul Smith is another Westall witness. In 1966, Paul was a market gardener. Paul watched as an object trailed by light planes disappeared into the dense pine of the Grange. Paul hypothesizes that a balloon would have been torn to pieces if it flew in there. UFO researcher Bill Chalker interviewed Bob. Bob was the Westall primary deputy headmaster. So that's like a vice principal in the U.S., folks. Bob told Bill he remembered returning to the school grounds during lunch break on 6th April 1966. Bob remembered the primary kids huddled in masses, quiet and nervous. Bob remembered having to console them. 
George questions why a balloon would cause the younger kids to quake in fear. Why a balloon would prompt the older kids to raise hammer and tongs for a glimpse of, of the mind-boggling. Another student, Marilyn Eastwood, described the object as round, with a hump on top and round things underneath. Still another, going by B.A., described how she had seen three UFOs that day. According to her, two of them landed, and she had seen two large circles of flattened and burnt grass. She indicated their width was about 50 feet across. She recollected how the military, ostensibly all three services, Air Force, Army, and Navy, had arrived at their house the next day. Her mother and Kay, her brother, went in a truck with her to the landing site. They were told to stay in the truck while the military investigated. They took samples of Earth. B recollected overhearing one of the military, an RAAF officer, saying that the Earth must have been subjected to extreme heat, as the Earth itself had been burnt. The military was insistent that the family say nothing about what they had witnessed. While her mother was sent, has since died, her brother Kay partially confirmed the story. He had been about three years younger than his sister and was attending the adjacent primary school. Mrs. A apparently also saw the UFO since she was serving the tuck shop at the time of the commotion. So that's like the school cafeteria, folks. B.A. also described how three students who, were talking, who talked to the TV station Channel 9 had been given detention for talking about the case. A school prefect... So a school prefect, folks, is a student who's given additional responsibilities. So it's basically kind of like a teacher's helper slash hall monitor, almost like a member of the student council. So it's not just your average student. Well, years later, this prefect described to Dr. Ian Gordon, who was then working in the Victorian Education Department Curriculum Development section, how he had been in a chemistry class during the incident. He had seen out through the windows, along with many other students and some teachers, both inside and outside classrooms, what seemed to him to be an object of a classic flying saucer shape. Silvery blue in color, come down behind a group of pine trees in an undeveloped area, not more than 200 meters from Fairbank Road, so again, that would be the Grange. There had been two objects according to what he had heard, but he only saw what seems to have been the first of these. All of a sudden, everyone in the sports class took off in a southwest direction, including some of the teachers, like there was a mass evacuation of the school, all after a flying saucer. According to the prefect, the thing had come down behind a group of pine trees. A large area of flattened grass was found there, perfectly circular in shape, about 30 feet in diameter, with three scorch marks. The grass was very dry, but it hadn't started a fire. In a westerly direction from the site, a man approached the school group, and told them all to piss off, because it was private property. The property had been standing idle for many years. The man walked through the area of flattened grass and seemed to ignore its existence, according to the prefect. When he was told by numerous screaming children that a flying saucer had come down there, he said, ah, bullshit, and various other things. The school children eventually returned to the school, accompanied by a number of teachers who had followed the mass exodus. The prefect was, was berated by the school principal for be being irresponsible and following the rest of the students and teachers. Students were forbidden to talk to the press. Some students were interviewed in Rosebank Avenue, near the school. There was a phone call to the principal. He made an announcement that no such thing had been seen and put it down again to mass hysteria. There were allegedly several unmarked planes, aluminium-colored, seemingly silent, flying over the area at the time very slowly. 
The prefect indicated that from the time of the thing coming down to when the school group arrived at the landing site had been a little more than five minutes. It was gone when the group arrived. The prefect indicated there had been a secondary mark with no scorch marks to the south of the main site, which suggested that a second object, apparently seen, may have landed. That object had been seen coming down very shortly after the first. The site was not flattened right down like the main one. It appeared to be just a swirled pattern in the grass, in an anti-clockwise or counterclockwise direction. It was understood that one of the teachers, a science teacher, may have taken photos of the site. Some students say they saw the object take off after it had come down, but most seem to have only seen something come down and later sighted the ground traces. There was apparently talk with some teachers, according to the prefect, that the craft had obviously been some sort of secret Air Force test weapon. Ray Fisher of the Victorian UFO Research Society has revealed that they had interviewed a man who came on the scene at about 5 p.m. of the day of the sightings. He saw a perfect circle of flattened grass, flattened right down to ground level, in grass that was about two feet high. This man recollected that he thought the area was about 30 feet in diameter. He returned a few days later to find a team of military or Air Force people going over the site. A couple of technical-looking vans were parked outside. He saw that people in uniform were examining the circle with what he took to be radiation detectors. Officials told him he couldn't go into the field and to move along. This gentleman returned to the site a third time, only to find that the paddock had been burnt out. So folks, I think that I'm going to leave it there for you for this evening, and we'll carry on with this next week. As I say, it's a very fascinating case, and as you can see already, there's basically everything you could want in a UFO case. Multiple witnesses, men in black, multiple craft. It's very interesting, and we're going to continue on with it next week. So... Sorry, folks, to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger, but that's the way it's going to go. And I'd like to leave you, as always, with the quote from Art Bell, which says, A mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached. Thank you, folks, and I'll catch you next week. <laughs>